0: Good morning everyone, I'm Joe Lichty, Associate Professor of Peace, Justice and Conflict Studies. It's my pleasure this morning to introduce both the C. Henry Smith Peace Lecture and the lecturer lecturer himself, Dr. Lamar Nisley, Professor of English at Bluffton University. Before introductions though, let me um, I want to let both students and faculty know that if you would like to talk more with Lamar about the themes he develops this morning, one opportunity will be 12 o'clock in the cafeteria. Uh, Lamar and I will be at a table near the back of the cafeteria. Any faculty or students who wish to join us, we'd be uh, delighted to talk with you. If that doesn't suit, Lamar has a fairly full day, but something might be possible, so just ask him. He'll be here briefly after convocation, but leaving soon for a class at 11. So, back to C. Henry Smith. C. Henry Smith was an outstanding, groundbreaking Mennonite historian who taught at Goshen College almost exactly 100 years ago, from 1908 to 1913, and then at Bluffton College from 1913 to 46. He established a trust from which Goshen College benefits in a variety of ways, all of them related to peace. He est- um, one of these benefits is that si- since 1975, the trust directors established a grant awarded once a year for peace-related research by faculty at Mennonite Colleges, principally Goshen and Bluffton. That award has done much to stimulate research that might otherwise have been impossible, and since its introduction, the list of lecturers is distinguished and the topics innovative. Which brings me to today's C. Henry Smith lecturer, Lamar Nisley, professor of English at Bluffton. Lamar graduated from Messiah College in 1990, and then completed his postgraduate education with what some of us slower types would regard as indecent haste, uh, getting his master's degree from the University of Delaware in 1993 and his PhD in 1996. So, what did that make you, Lamar? 24, 25, maybe? Um, but anyway, indecent haste seems to be something of a theme with Lamar, as after completing his PhD, he walked straight into a post in the English department at Bluffton where he has been teaching ever, ever since. Lamar's title this morning is Good for the Soul, or Why Mennonites Should Read Catholic Literature. And while the Mennonite soul may be especially needy, I think Lamar would actually want uh, pretty much everyone to read Catholic literature. It's a theme that has been developing in his work for a long time. Of the three authors he will focus on today, and they are Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, and Tim Gautreaux, Percy and O'Connor were featured already in his 1996 PhD dissertation, which was published in 2002 as Impossible to Say, representing religious mystery in fiction by Malamud, Percy, Ozick, and O'Connor. Since then, O'Connor and Percy remain central to Lamar's scholarly pursuits, with Grotro added to the mix. Lamar is almost finished with a book entitled Wingless Chickens, Bayou Companions and Pilgrim Wayfarers, construction of tone and audience in O'Connor, Gotro, and Percy. So why is Catholic literature good for our souls? Lamar expects us to find in these works reflections on themes of peace and justice, the all-consuming nature of following Christ, the sacredness of each individual, and the possibility of grace. That does actually sound good for the soul. Please join me in welcoming Lamar Nisley.
1: Thank you, Joe, and thanks to all of you for coming out. I know at Bluffton there are some choices that you students make among these various convocations, so I'm glad to see you here. And thanks also to this community for your support over the last number of weeks. It's been a difficult spring as we have uh, dealt with the bus accident of course here at, Bluff- at Bluffton and we've certainly been su- felt supported by our sister institution here in, the ver- in various ways, so thank you for that support. I'm very pleased to have a chance to speak to you this morning about a topic that's near to my heart, the issue of Mennonites and Catholics and connections visible in literature. Making this kind of linkage between Mennonites and Catholics does not seem particularly extraordinary to me because I've been a Mennonite all of my life and I have been for many years reading and writing Catholic, uh, reading and writing about Catholic literature. But when a friend of mine found out about my research interests, she wrote me that my taking an interest in these Catholic writers seemed somehow rebellious. I have to admit to being inordinately proud of being named a rebel, because despite my long hair and typical tie-dyed t-shirt, being called rebellious is not something that often happens to me. Though hers was the most colorful comment, over the years of my work with Catholic writers, I have often heard versions of the same question. Why are you, as a Mennonite, obsessing over these Catholic writers? So let me say just a few words about that before I get to the main part of my lecture. Although I did not realize it at the time, I have come to see that my experience as a child was a gift, for I did not inherit from my parents the fairly standard Protestant or Mennonite uh, fears and suspicions of Catholics. Instead, my father is also a scholar on Flannery O'Connor, and he spoke with deep appreciation of her convictions. Indeed, I remember as a 10-year-old being a little surprised and befuddled over my father's sadness at Pope Pope Paul VI's passing in 1978. I understood his reaction much better a few years ago when I mourned Pope John Paul II's passing. I came to Catholic literature then not with any specific interest in or fear of Catholicism, but mostly because I liked the literature. And I found the questions raised in these texts provocative for my own understandings. It has only been much more recently that I have more fully appreciated the gift that the Second Vatican Council was, an event that occurred just before I was born in laying the groundwork for the interdenominational connections that are so important for for my work. Indeed, one of my motivations for presenting this lecture is to emphasize that each of us can learn from and connect with important elements of other denominations. I should also hasten to add that even though I wish to embrace this radical rebellious side of myself, the truth is that over the years, there have been a number of of increasingly explicit connections between Mennonites and Catholics. For instance, in the last year, both the Mennonite and the Mennonite Weekly Review have published articles highlighting connections between Catholics and Mennonites. Similarly, this past December, the National Catholic Reporter published an opinion piece entitled, What Catholics Could Learn from the Mennonites. Official dialogues have also taken place between Mennonite and Catholic leaders over a period of, of some five years. And in the more scholarly realm, based here at Goshen, a series of articles have appeared in Mennonite Quarterly Review, beginning as early as 1966, exploring connections between Mennonite and Catholic thought. It's also important to note the contributions of, in this conversation of the prominent Mennonite theologian John Howard Yoder's uh, long-term professorship at the University of Notre Dame. And one more connection, more popularly, the Catholic Mennonite conversations are being nurtured by the yearly meeting of the bridge folk uh, gatherings, this happening this summer, I believe, in Elkhart, um, drawing together people interested in connections between the two denominations. Given these various connections between Mennonites and Catholics, my claim to being a rebel may well be tenuous at best. But these intersections that others have also noted between the two denominations underline my contention that there are good reasons to link them together. And because of my disciplinary background, I find it most meaningful to locate these connections in literature. My argument for this lecture is fairly straightforward. I believe that Mennonites, if I can get my PowerPoint to work here, I believe that Mennonites should read Catholic fiction because it intersects well and complicates and offers helpful complications to Mennonite views. Specifically, Catholic literature explores themes central to Mennonites, emphasizes the importance of daily discipleship, underscores the sacredness of all humans, and reveals the possibility of grace for even unlikely characters. By extension, through these particular analyses, my hope is to enable all of us to see that we can find significant, contributions, significant connections with literature and beliefs from other denominations. So even if your background is neither Mennonite nor Catholic, I encourage you to think about how your own beliefs tie into these uh, literary examples I mentioned. Two other points of clarification. First, even though I've been using this general term Catholic literature, as as Joe said, my coverage of of literature will actually be much more circumscribed. I plan to draw my examples from three authors, Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, and Tim Gautreau. All three of these have been, uh, Flannery O'Connor's from Georgia and the other two are from Louisiana and all three have been writing um, in the period from the 1950s to the present. Uh, Tim Gocher is, is, is still living and I'll make a few references to that. There are certainly plenty of other worthy Catholic writers but these are the three whom, who have captured my imagination and w- about whom I've been writing. One other clarification, my goal in this lecture is not to make the case that the Mennonite ideas that I'm talking about are the core, the only Mennonite beliefs. I'm making some assumptions about what are important to Mennonites so that I can spend more time on the Catholic examples that I'm gonna be talking about. Now, on to the main part of what I wanna say. First of all, Mennonites should read Catholic literature because Catholic fiction explores themes important to Mennonites, specifically peace and violence, the consistent life ethic, and racism. I'll begin with Peace and Violence. I've read few novels that deal more searingly with questions of violence than Tim Gautreaux's novel, The Clearing. The novel is set in the 1920s, in a 1920s sawmill in backwoods, Louisiana. But the two main characters, Randolph and Byron Aldridge, are from Western Pennsylvania. Randolph has been working at home as the dutiful son with his father on the other hand, his brother Byron, has been unable to settle down since his return from World War I. In fact, the family had lost track of him, and as the novel opens, has just located him working at the sawmill, so the father buys the sawmill, tracked and all, and sends Randolph down to rescue his brother but the murkiness of the swampy ground with its sweeping cypress trees serves as a fitting backdrop for the shadowy questions that come to plague Randolph and Byron. Their conflict centers on a rancid saloon on the sawmill grounds, owned by local mobsters. Violence flares both, both within the saloon, as the workers brawl, and with the mob as the brothers try to assert some control over the saloon. In the course of the novel, Gocho explores an intriguing array of responses to the violence. For instance, at one point, Randolph encourages Byron to try allowing the men to fight it out, rather than having Byron interfere and shoot one of the drunken brawlers. At another point, Randolph gets Byron to inflict a more limited use of force, carrying a short handled shovel instead of a gun. Each of these efforts is ultimately unsuccessful, as the drunken brawlers keep reappearing and producing their corpses. More philosophically, the brothers also discuss the idea of assassination, wondering if killing the mob boss Buzzetti is an appropriate response. By extension, Byron ruminates if the war might have been avoided if the German Kaiser had been killed. In response, Randolph points out, a killing started the whole thing, you know, the Archduke. Such a response is typical in this novel, for Gautref refuses to accept easily any idea that violence provides an ultimate answer. Instead, the cycle of violence continues unrelentingly. Randolph accidentally shoots Buzzetti's cousin in the saloon. Buzzetti's hitman, Crouch, responds by placing a venomous snake in, to bite Byron's son. The brothers arrange to arrest the mob as they are smuggling liquor, but the arrest goes mad, bad and all the mobsters are killed, except the hitman, Crouch. Crouch, of course, returns to shoot Randolph, although Randolph survives the attempted murder. What keeps this novel from being merely a bloody story of revenge is the brothers' ongoing questioning and pain in response to each new violent act, whether they are the perpetrators or the victims. As we live with their, with their anguish, we see the senselessness of the ceaseless, ceaseless cycle of violence. In a conversation with me, Gautra mentioned that a way he works to keep the violence from being gratuitous is by constantly showing us the effects of the violence, rather than having us focus on some dramatic, violent explosion as might happen in an action movie. Even more, the futility of this violence ever to reach a solution pushes the reader to look back up the chain of violence to find a cause. And Gotro makes the ultimate villain of this novel abundantly clear, war itself. Randolph muses to himself as he tries to figure out whose fault it is that a man has has died, wondering if it was Vincente or himself or Buzzetti or a war that has taught so many how to kill. For each of the major instigators of violence has himself been a participant in a horrible war experience. Byron saw about a thousand of those French boys gagging out their lungs into little lakes of blood. A shelled cathedral crashing down on lines of penitence. Scenes that Byron cannot remove from his memory. But Gotro further humanizes the violence that occurs by showing that the bad characters have their own horrific war stories. Byron reports about Buzzetti, the mob boss. I heard that he lost three brothers in one day, all bayoneted. They say he watched each one die. More developed is the account of Crouch, the, the hitman, who was forced to kill wounded Italian soldiers after he was captured. Randolph is told that the Austrians who had captured Crouch got some bread, soaked it in the blood of one of the men he had just killed, put it on the bayonet of a Carcano rifle, and made him put it in the mouths of the wounded. Reportedly, Crouch also lost his eye through torture in captivity, although Randolph's teller of these events mercifully spares him, and us, the details of this dismembering. Gautreaux's insistence on on these connections between the violent actions in the story and their genesis in the earlier war points up the ongoing deadly consequences of war. Though The Clearing is not a pacifist novel, since it seems to acknowledge some role for violence to protect the innocent, it raises profound questions about whether, concerning whether violence can ever bring about lasting solutions. Real healing in the novel occurs as Randolph leaves his neatly organized life as a manager to enter into the messy pain of his brother's experiences and as the brothers spend, spend time with Byron's son, Walter. The brothers find healing as they connect deeply with each other not by killing off the mob. A second theme that Catholics share with Mennonites is a concern with protecting life wherever it comes under attack. The confession of faith in a Mennonite perspective explains, we witness against all forms of violence including war among nations, hostility among races and classes, abuse of children and women, violence between men and women, abortion and capital punishment. Of the writers I'm studying, Walker Percy is most explicit in his endorsement of a consistent life ethic. In an interview, he speaks of the importance of abortion to him, but he clarifies, I have reservations though when people make that a litmus test and have absolutely no interest in preserving the sanctity of life in such areas as the prevention of war, capital punishment, and helping women, the young poor women, who get pregnant. Percy affirms the late Cardinal Joseph Bernadine's position of being pro-life wherever life is threatened, not just in the case of abortion, as he says. Looking at the issue from a different perspective, Percy notes, if I had anything to say to the liberals, in the usual sense of that word, is that I agree with them on almost everything, their political and social cause and the ACLU. God knows the rights to freedom of speech, to help the homeless, the poor, the minorities. God knows the blacks, the third world. Their hearts are in the right place, he says. And he goes on, it's actually a mystery, a bafflement to me how they cannot see the paradox of being in favor of these good things and yet not not batting an an eyelash when it comes to destroying unborn life. This theme of protecting human life and what makes us human is central in Percy's fiction, but it is most explicit in his last novel, The Thanatos Syndrome. A futuristic adventure, The Thanatos Syndrome combines a very engaging storyline with provocative moral questions. In this novel, scientists have been controlling the population by inserting heavy sodium into the water supply. In certain ways, the results seem highly beneficial. Crime has virtually vanished. Students' grades have improved. People seem happy. But as he so commonly does, Percy reveals the basic devaluation of humanity that has occurred with the solution. For along with the seemingly beneficial results of this project are disturbing effects people have lost a sense of themselves. They are more animal than human, a point that Percy amusingly makes by having them groom each other as though they were chimpanzees. Parallel to this wider treatment project is the development of what are called qualitarian centers, where older people are being sent rather than to a hospice, revealing a version of euthanasia for people doctors deem unworthy of living. Percy manages to suggest his own stance through a crazy priest, who is living in a fire watchtower, calling to mind the desert stylites who lived on pillars. Father Smith makes proclamations which at first seem to make no sense, but on reflection disclose what I think are Percy's deepest beliefs. Father Smith accuses the protagonist, Dr. Tom Moore, who's a psychiatrist, saying, you are a member of the first generation of doctors in the history of medicine to turn their backs on the oath of Hippocrates and kill millions of old useless people, unborn children, born malformed children for the good of mankind, and to do so without a single murmur from one of you. You're going to end up killing Jews, he says. Later he insists, tenderness leads to the gas chamber. These links initially seem simply an element of Father Smith's craziness, but as Percy develops this theme, we see that he finds connections between contemporary society's attitudes toward the lives of the vulnerable and the Nazi's determination that certain humans were unsuitable to live. Making this plea directly, Father Smith launches into a sermon near the end of the novel exhorting, please do this one a favor for us, dear doctors. If you have a patient, young or old, suffering, dying, afflicted, useless, born or unborn, whom you for the best of reasons wish to put out of his misery, I beg only one thing of you, dear doctors. Please send them to us at the hospice. Don't kill them. We'll take them, all of them. Through Percy's fictional adventure, we are all pushed to ask ourselves if we extend our concern for humans to all phases of life, particularly as he forces us to wrestle with a sense of complicity with the Nazis. His serious engagement of the consistent life ethic position is a useful challenge to all of us who claim to value life. Too often, it seems, we have a tendency, wherever we fall on the political spectrum, to champion one cause or another. Through the novel, Percy confronts each of us with the sacredness of all of life, enunciating an embracing vision of humanity. A third theme central to Mennonites is an engagement of questions of racial justice. Of the three writers I am focusing on, Percy is the one who was most most directly involved in efforts at racial justice in the 1960s. Though for the most part he eschewed direct action, seeing himself as a diagnostician who critiques society's ills from the sidelines, he became involved in his community's justice efforts and admits with some pride that he and his family spent a night sleeping in the attic for fear of a Klan attack. He also served on an advisory board with fellow Catholic Thomas Merton for a journal that pushed for racial reconciliation. His fictional treatment of this topic occurs most fully in his 1971 novel, Love in the Ruins, a kind of allegorical adventure about the political polarization that has taken place. This novel, which still has important themes in it even as it seems to me a bit dated, shows a country bitterly divided among the knotheads, the newly renamed Republican Party, the left, the Democrats, and the Bantus, a militant African-American group. In this farcical adventure, Percy suggests that these seemingly hostile groups in the, United, in the United States may yet find ways to coexist. But I'm going to focus more fully on a Tim Gautreaux story called Deputy Sid's Gift. This story, a bit unusual for Gautreaux in that it's in the first person, actually it's in the form of a confession to a priest, tells the story of Bobby Simoneau a former oil field worker who lost his job during the oil bust. Now he's working as an aide in a nursing home, as he says, spoon-feeding and scrubbing these old babies. The real conflict in the story emerges, though, outside of his work when his worthless 1962 Chevrolet pickup is stolen by Furness Bezu, a middle-aged African-American wino. Bobby's attitudes quickly become clear when he describes Deputy Sid, who was assigned to investigate the crime as that black devil? Though everyone else, including his wife, uh, including Bobby's wife, uh, agrees that having the junkie pickup stolen was a blessing, Bobby is insistent that he gets his truck back because he had what was mine and he didn't work for it. Bobby becomes increasingly agitated throughout the story, for Furnace steals the, the truck again. And after Bobby recovers it a third time uh, and removes the battery, Furnace comes to sleep in the pickup at Bobby's house. Yet, even as he continues in this manner, feeling racially and economically superior to Furnace, he begins to question his own motivations. He wonders particularly if, I was only nice to the old people at work because I was paid for that. He struggles with knowing how to respond, beginning beginning to think constantly of Furnace. He says of Other people deserve my help, and that furnace didn't deserve nothing, yet when I went to sleep, there he was in my head. When I read a newspaper, there he was in a group picture until I focused real good. Bobby finally decides that even though he didn't give a damn about some black truck thief, he wanted to do something nice without being paid. In some ways, surprising even himself, Bobby ends up giving the truck to furnace, telling him the story that Deputy Sid had bought it for him, hence the name Deputy Sid's Gift. In its understated way, this story wonderfully displays Bobby's moral development as he moves from seeing this black drunk as, as a mere object to a person with feelings and desires. Similarly, he comes to recognize that he needs to learn from Deputy Sid, this man he'd called this black devil before, about the importance of doing good. But what I like most about this story is the way that Gotru explores with us how we might think about our mixed emotions as we are do-gooders. For the central element of Bobby's confession is his acknowledgement to the priest that, I gave up the truck mostly to make myself feel good, not to help Furnace Bezu. As Bobby recounts, the priest responded that, there's only one thing worse than what I did, not doing it. (laughs) In that brief exchange, Gotro cuts through the welter of ambiguity that many of us wannabe, do-gooder Mennonites feel and emphasizes the importance of doing. Since the whole impact of the story has been an exploration of Bobby's actions, Gauter certainly is not suggesting that we should be unreflective. But the story does push us to be certain that we do not get so caught up in our liberal guilt that we forget to act. The story ends with a wonderful description of grace. Deputy Sid tells Bobby that Furnace has died and Bobby expressed his sorrow. Deputy Sid says, don't feel like that. We couldn't do nothing for him, but we did it anyway. What a wonderful description of God's gracious love for us and are called to act lovingly even to the most unlovable. We couldn't do nothing for him, but we did it anyway. Besides these several issues that Mennonites and Catholics share, a second broad reason why Mennonites should read Catholic fiction is that this literature emphasizes the centrality of discipleship for a believer. The view that faith must have an impact on all aspects of a person's life, not just on Sunday morning. In the words of the Mennonite Confession of Faith, as by faith we walk in Christ's way, we are being transformed into his image. We become conformed to Christ, faithful to the will of God, and separated from the evil of the world. Mennonites strongly emphasize, as you well know, that faithful following of Christ cannot be separated from the daily actions of life, and that there is real cost to making the decision to follow Christ. For anyone committed to this view of discipleship, reading Flannery O'Connor is is essential, and readers should not stop with her fiction, for her letters provide as engaging reading as her fiction. At one point, when she is discussing the the Christian nature of her stories, she writes that recognizing this Christian perspective is central, for it concerns specifically, she says, Christ and the incarnation, the fact that there has been a unique intervention in history, It's not a matter in these these stories of do unto others. That can be found in any ethical culture series, she says. It is is the fact of the word made flesh. Recognizing and following the incarnated Christ is always fundamental in O'Connor's work. Similarly, she had no stomach for the pious niceties she too often heard associated with religious commitment. Her attitude toward these sanctimonious feelings often becomes abundantly clear in the shocking nature of her stories. Thus, she emphasizes to her correspondence the costliness of belief. She writes, what people don't re- realize is how much religion costs. They think faith is a big electric blanket, when of course it is, the cross. Great line there. O'Connor's view that faith must daily be lived, lived out is perhaps best shown in her most famous story, A Good Man Is Hard to Find. I recognize that some of you have probably read this in some anthology, since it is often anthologized. But her point in here seems so closely tied to a Mennonite sense that I hope you'll indulge me by hearing reference to it again. The main character in this story, a grandmother, is shown as living entirely on the surface. Though she considers herself a fine Christian lady, the story reveals her is obsessed only with appearance and with having no real commitment to following Christ. As she and her son's family of five set off on a vacation trip, the grandmother dresses very carefully so that in case of an accident, everyone would know at once that she was a lady. The story takes a bizarre turn when the family has an accident and they are found by an escaped convict who calls himself the misfit. The misfit has determined that he finds no pleasure but meanness. So he proceeds to murder each member of the family until only the grandmother is left. In her fear and attempt to distract him, she begins to talk about Jesus, encouraging the misfit to pray. In turn, the misfit reveals himself to be a modern empiricist, claiming that he was not around when Jesus was on earth, so he cannot know whether or not Jesus raised the dead. But unlike the grandmother, who only mouths platitudes about Christianity, the misfit recognizes that if Jesus' supposed actions are true, he thrown everything off balance. And and the misfit says that if he knew that the message of Jesus was true, I wouldn't be like I am now. In an odd way, the misfit is shown as being closer to real belief than the grandmother, for at least he recognizes that believing in Christ has real implications for how one lives. This point is powerfully driven home in the climax of the story, for in a surprising turn, the grandmother has a moment of clarity, the narrator describes. She saw the man's face twisted close to her own as if he were going to cry, and she murmured, why, you're one of my babies you're one of my own children. She reached out and touched him on the shoulder. Now, of course, this is an O'Connor story, so in response, the misfit shoots her three times. His comment about her, though, is priceless. He says, she would have been a good woman if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. Now, I'm quite certain that no Mennonites or believers of any denomination would endorse the violence in this story. But as O'Connor makes clear through her grotesque approach, following Christ must always be at the core of who we are. At the moment when she is facing death, the grandmother is suddenly able to see that she shares a common humanity even with this murderer. Instead of feeling superior to him, she claims him as a son. I trust that we do not need to be facing a murderer to move beyond the surface but as this story shows, we are called to live each moment of our lives with a deep commitment to Christ. A third connection between Mennonite understandings and Catholic literature is the profound sense of each individual person's worth. Although these writers do not use the language of the upside down kingdom, that idea certainly permeates their fiction as it is often the marginalized one who receives their sympathy in a story. Tim Gautreaux's stories exemplify this approach particularly well, since he feels a deep empathy for the less sophisticated blue-collar characters he often writes about. And I think this is is well shown in a story called Resistance, but I'm gonna skip that for now for the sake of time and talk about a different O'Connor story, actually. Flannery O'Connor's The Displaced Person effectively engages questions about the other, particularly in our current national debate about immigration. Set after World War II, a Polish refugee family, the Guizaks, come to work on a southern farm. Although Mrs. McIntyre, the woman who owns the farm, has invited them to come, neither she nor her hired hands are sure about these newcomers who do not seem as though they belong. Mrs. McIntyre's attitude is summed up by one of the clichés that she and her farmhands use, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. As she becomes less comfortable with Mr. Guizac, she insists to the priest who has arranged for the Guizacs to come, he doesn't fit in. The priest continues to urge her to work with the Guizacs since they have nowhere else to go. He also seeks to engage her in conversation about Jesus. Mrs. McIntyre is not pleased about this turn because as the narrator explains, Christ in the conversation embarrassed her the way sex had her mother. As she becomes more agitated at being pushed to consider her responsibility to this displaced person, or DP as they call him, and to Christ, Mrs. McIntyre utters what is to me the most moving line in the story. Christ, she says, as far as I'm concerned, Christ was just another DP. This sentence has continued to reverberate in my mind throughout our nation's heated debate about immigration, and especially during the more recent uh, decision to build a fence on the border with Mexico. Christ was just another DP. O'Connor is pushing us to see that Christ is embodied in the stranger, the other, the one whom we fear and distrust. The Mennonite Confession of Faith asserts, we witness to the nations by being that city on a hill, which demonstrates the way of Christ. We also witness by being ambassadors for Christ, calling the nations and all persons and institutions to move toward justice, peace, and compassion for all people. The displaced person fictionally embodies this call to justice and compassion for all people. The stranger, the least of these among us, must always be loved and protected. A final connection I find between Mennonite ideals and Catholic literature is an emphasis on grace being available even to the most unlikely people. I find particularly helpful the Catholic emphasis on sacramental action and ordinary, frail individuals serving as surprising conduits for God's grace. In the Mennonite Confession of Faith, God's action and human response is emphasized. It says, when we hear the good news of the love of God, the Holy Spirit moves us to accept the gift of salvation. God brings us into right relationship without coercion. Our response includes yielding to God's grace placing full trust in God alone, repenting of sin, turning from evil, joining the fellowship of the redeemed, and showing forth the obedience of faith in word and deed. Certainly Catholics and Mennonites have different understandings of how how grace is conferred, with Catholics embracing a sacramental vision of grace. The Eucharist, in particular, is an essential means to receive Christ. Yet the many instances in this Catholic fiction of grace being offered and received in startling ways serve for all of us as a helpful check to our too, e- too easy self-satisfaction in our worthiness. Walker Percy's novel, The Second Coming, is a fun, wacky love story between two odd characters. Percy humorously claims, I like to think half-seriously that this may be the first unalienated story written since Tolstoy. In one section, Will Barrett decides that he is going to de- determine once and for all whether or not God exists venting a typical Percy complaint, Will says that he finds people around him, whether they claim to be believers or unbelievers, are crazy. He says, I'm surrounded by two classes of maniacs. The first are believers who think they know the reason why we find ourselves in this ludicrous predicament, yet act for all the world as if they don't. The second are the unbelievers who don't know the reason and don't care if they don't. Further, he engages the idea of the divine wager enunciated by the Enlightenment thinker Pascal, who said that we should bet that there is a God because we have nothing to lose if we're wrong, that we have nothing to lose if we're wrong, and everything to gain if God exists. Will declares that this idea has merit, yet he says, it is, after all, ludicrous to reduce the question to a crapshoot in Vegas. Further, says Will, says Will, He has designed a more scientific method to answer the question of God's existence. He will hide himself away in a cave and wait for God to reveal himself. He decides that if if he himself, if Will is saved, God exists. If he dies, there is no God. With this conceited God-trapping mindset, Will hides away in the cave. The experiment proceeds apace for the seven or eight days, but then the ironic narrator tells us Will develops a toothache so severe that he becomes nauseated, the narrator says. There is one sure cure for cosmic explorations, grandiose ideas about God, man, death, suicide, and such, and that's nausea. I defy a man afflicted with nausea to give a single thought to these vast subjects. A nauseated man is a disinterested man. This seemingly silly ending to Will's overblown sense of himself and his experiment serves to show the hubris of Will's experiment, to reveal explicitly that God cannot be reduced to a test tube or be forced to align with a modernist desire for certainty. But what makes this novel so wonderful is that even in the context of Will's inappropriate expectations, God's grace is revealed. As the narrator says about the toothache, whether it was God's doing or ordinary mortal frailty, one cannot be sure. Using Percy's indirect approach, the novel refuses to give explicit guidance on this question. But events following the toothache in the cave suggest that, in fact, this mundane toothache was God's self-revelation. For Will falls from the cave into a greenhouse where his new love, Allie, lives. And this young young woman helps to restore Will's health and serves as an agent of grace to bring about his return to belief. God does not act in the ways that Will had mandated, but God's grace is evident in unusual ways to bring Will to a place that his faith is renewed. Near the end of this novel, before Will has made a commitment to God, he is in a hospital observing two orderlies caring for a scared patient. In what is my all-time favorite description of grace, we watch the scene through Will's eyes. Then how does it add up in the economy of giving and getting, he wondered? That the two orderlies cared nothing, or did they, for the old woman? That even in the very act of their offhand reassurances to her, they were probably cooking up something between them. That they, the orderlies, who had no reason to give her anything at all, gave it because it was so little to give and so much for her to get. Two cents equals five dollars? How? And then he goes on, does goodness come tricked out so as fakery and fondness and carrying on, and is God himself as sly? Through a commonplace scene, Percy has shown us God's grace being extended through ordinary people. And by the end of the novel, Will comes to accept this gracious offer. The final example of grace being offered and received comes from Tim Gautreaux's story from which I've taken my title, Good for the Soul. In this story, Father Lede is shown to be a good man, although he takes a bit too much pleasure in his brandy. While he is quite drunk one evening, the the priest is called to a hospital to hear the confession of Clyde Arsenault. On his way there, he has a car accident and subsequently has his license suspended. In a very amusing series of events, because of Clyde's confession, Father Lede gets drawn into returning a car that Clyde had stolen 10 years earlier. Driving a stolen car without a license is a certain recipe for disaster, and Farla today does get stopped by a police officer, who in response to his plea for mercy, grimly replies, thems that deserves it gets mercy. Yet Goethe reveals in the story that this view of grace and mercy is not his own. For the story ends with a masterfully understated presentation of grace. As punishment for his wrongdoing, Father Lede has been removed from his parish for two months, and his parishioners seem upset and distant from him. He has also heard nothing from Clyde Arsenault, this critically ill man with whom he had been working, but who has refused to come to the church for years. In the final passage of the story, Father Lede is back in the pulpit for the first time. I want to read this last section of the story. The first day he was again allowed to put on vestments was a Sunday, and he went in to say the 11 o'clock Mass. The church was full, and the sun was bleeding gold streamers of light down through the sacristy windows behind the altar. After the Gloria was sung by the bird-like voices of a visiting children's choir, the priest stood in the pulpit and read the gospel, drawing scant solace from the story of Jesus turning water into wine. The congregation then sat down in a rumble of settling pews and kicked up kneelers. Father of the Day began to talk about Christ's first miracle, an old sermon, one he'd given dozens of times. The elder parishioners in the front pews seemed to regard him as a stranger. The children were uninterested, and he felt disconnected and sad as he spoke, wondering if he would ever be punished enough for what he had done. And then this is the last paragraph there. He scanned the faces in the congregation as he preached, looking for forgiveness of any sort. And 15 minutes into the sermon, he saw in the fifth pew against the wall something that was better than forgiveness, better than what he deserved, something that gave sudden light to his dull voice and turned bored heads up to the freshened preaching. It was Clyde Arsenal, a plastic tube creeping down from his nose and taped to his puckered neck. He was asleep, pale, two steps from death, his head resting against the wall, but at least he had finally come inside." Gautreaux lovingly reveals God's gracious action flowing in two directions, as Clyde is brought back into the church through Father Lede's self-sacrificial actions for him. At the same time, God's grace is conferred to Father Lede when he sees Clyde back in the church, revealing to the priest Christ's ongoing care for him. These reminders of God's freely flowing grace can encourage each of us to seek to be agents of grace, even to those whom we we deem undeserving, and remind us to be open to receiving God's grace even when we feel unworthy. My pointing out these connections between Mennonites and Catholic literature is not meant to imply that all doctrinal differences should be swept away. Important conversations should continue among theologians from both denominations. But I am saying that even while recognizing our differences, Catholics and Mennonites can find common ground in fiction by these authors. In a fundamental way, Mennonites and Catholics are linked by the belief that because of Christ's love of us and all humanity, we must extend love and grace to all people, even seemingly unlovable ones. Pope John XXIII makes such a view wonderfully clear in his encyclical, Peace on Earth. He writes, the person who errs is always and above all a human being, and he retains in every case his, his dignity as a human person, and he must be always regarded and treated in accordance with that lofty dignity. Perhaps most centrally, these novels are pushing each of us and the Christian church more broadly to be better, more united than our fractious groups too often are. Percy was speaking specifically about the church's relationship with African Americans, but I think his view may serve as a broader critique as well. He says, it is significant that the failure of Christendom in the United States has not occurred in the sector of theology or metaphysics, but rather in the sector of everyday morality, which has acutely concerned Americans since the Puritans. Specifically, Percy says, American churches have lacked in charity. Similarly, it is a failure of our love for each other to miss seeing our deep connections with our brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever their denominations. Let us strive to live and love each other as one holy, Catholic, united church. And just in case you're inspired to read any of these stories, here's a listing of the stories that I mentioned. Thanks very much.